This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So a couple weeks ago, I heard a wonderful report from our missionary serving in West Africa. She goes by the code name Reina. She's working in a city, but has a friend who's from a village in the bush. And she went with this friend, who's another young woman, to her home village and found out that her friend was actually the daughter of the chief. As she was staying in this village, she found out that she was the very first Christian ever to set foot into this village. And technically, it was against uh, their, their rules as, as a Muslim people to hear any teachings other than the teachings of Islam. But because she had the favor of the chief, she was sitting with them one night, and they said, do you have any stories to share? And she said, well, could I tell you one from, from the Bible, from the Christian scriptures? And they said, sure, go ahead. And she told them the story of the prodigal son, of the younger brother who takes his inheritance earlier, spurns his father, blows his money in wild living, and then in a place of emptiness and deprivation, repents and comes back to the father who receives him with joy while the older brother looks on with anger and disapproval. Her friend, the young woman, said, that's a bad father. He should have punished that younger son. <laughs> but the chief said, oh, that is the heart of a father. You never give up on your children. And it struck me as I was so, I mean, think, isn't that amazing? The first Christian ever to enter that village, we pray for her, and she's telling the good news about Jesus. Isn't that awesome? But it occurred to me, we also can have these stories in our hearts. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost sons are easy to know. You don't have to know them word for word. What if we committed to knowing these stories and able, if somebody ever said, well, tell me about God, instead of a truth or a proposition or an argumentation, tell them a story. What if we did that? So let's turn to Luke 15, where we have these three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. They do, to go, they do go together as a unit. They share the same theme of something is lost, and then it is found, and we're told that there is joy in heaven over one sinner who turns back to God. That's the meaning of all three of the parables, though they tease out different angles. In the background, the audience of these parables are the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious teachers, and they are unhappy about what Jesus is teaching and what he is doing. So to them, Jesus tells these parables as a way to say, I've come to rescue the lost and to bring sinners back to God. That's my mission. And even the worst and least acceptable ones are precious to me. And so on this first week of a series, studying Jesus, the Good Shepherd, what does Luke 15 have to tell us about Jesus, the Good Shepherd? Well, it tells us that Jesus, our shepherd, loves every one of his sheep, even those who are unacceptable to love in the eyes of others. Jesus loves every one of his sheep, even those who are unacceptable. So today we're going to hear about how is it that Jesus loves these unacceptable tax collectors and sinners. But then at the end, we're going to find out, surprisingly, that there are more unacceptable sinners than we even first thought. All right, so turn to verse 1, there in Luke 15. 
It says the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. The tax collectors were rich. They were powerful. They had the backing of the state authorities, and they were traitors of the worst kind. The word sinners was, uh, could refer to a, a group of different people. Often prostitutes were among them. And among these prostitutes, some were wealthy. They chose that profession out of the convenience, easy way, quick way to get rich. Others, we can assume, were driven to prostitution out of poverty and a sense of need. But along with prostitutes, there was also just generally the sense that the sinners were those who just didn't really care about God and his law. We just finished studying an Old Testament book where the worst thing you could do was to be an idol worshiper, to be unfaithful to Yahweh, to not really care about worshiping the one true God. And that's who these sinners are that we're reading about today. But Jesus was able to find these people, and all of a sudden they started caring about God. Jesus' love for them jump-started their love for God. So if you're here this morning and you would say, yeah, I don't really care about being a Christian or about loving God, well, hear this. God still loves you. He loves even those who have turned away from him and through his steadfast love is able to draw sinners back to himself. Look at verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes, that is the religious leaders, they were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Eating was a sign of friendship, and the word receives carries with it this sense of, of welcome, or as Father Matt would say, welcome. Have you ever noticed he can't pronounce that word, and now that he's all better, we can tease him again. There's no, there's no O at the beginning of that word, Matt. Welcome. It means welcoming with a sense of approval. I approve of you. No wonder the Pharisees and the religious leaders were mystified and scandalized, rightly so. And we might even ask, so did Jesus approve of their sin? Was he soft on sin? But notice, they were drawing near to what? To hear him. They were listening to the teachings of Jesus. And if you go around the book of Luke just a little bit, you find out that in his teachings, Jesus is calling sinners to repent. He's telling the greedy to renounce their money and their greed, the sinful lives of these people. He's saying, turn away from that into something new. And the story earlier of Levi, a tax collector, he leaves his former life and he follows Jesus. Or the story later of Zacchaeus, who sells half of what he has and pays back everyone that he defrauded. His life has changed. Or the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, who anoints his feet with the expensive nard. Likely she was one of those wealthy prostitutes. She anointed his feet as a way to say, I love you, you've changed my life. Be assured she did not go back to her former way of life. As Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God who through Jesus Christ has reconciled us to himself, brought us back to him. Now look at verses 3 and 4. So in response to the grumbling of the Pharisees, Jesus tells this parable, and actually all three of these parables. He says, What man of you, 
having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country to go searching for that one. Similarly with the parable of the coin, what woman of you, if you lost a precious coin, wouldn't light a lamp and sweep the house? So in the sheep and the coin, Jesus is illustrating the value of even one sinner. So we're going to meditate on that word one for a few minutes here. Jesus says, the one that is gone, you would go after, whether it's a sheep or a coin. Jesus does not need to persuade his audience of the importance of looking for lost things that are valuable. That's just common sense. That's what any of them would do. What man of you wouldn't do this? What woman? There's no argument there. What Jesus is doing is he is turning his persuasion and his argument to the Pharisees to say, but I want to change your understanding of what, or rather who, is a valuable lost thing worth searching after. That's what I want to change. Any of you would go looking for a valuable lost thing. I want you to see who is valuable. The Bible teaches us that every human being is made in the image of God. That means that something of human nature reflects something of divine nature, and that's unique to us. Nothing else in all creation has that unique gift. Wow. Julie and I love Mother Teresa. We named our second daughter after her because she understood the immeasurable worth of even one person. And there are stories of people who, after meeting with her and, and talking with her, when she leaves the room, they, they would burst into tears out of joy for the love they felt from her and sadness that she had left the room. She understood that even in the untouchable, there was the immeasurable worth of a single human being, all made in the image of God. The Bible also teaches us that every person will either enter, will either live forever in the joy of heaven or perish forever in the torment of hell. That's why it matters when even one person who is on the path towards eternal destruction turns around. That's why all the angels rejoice because they grasp something of the immensity of eternity in hell versus eternity in heaven. For even one person, they grasp the immensity of what is at stake, and they rejoice when one sinner turns. That's also why we keep praying for the lost, those who are far from Jesus. We keep praying. We never give up until Jesus, the good shepherd, finds that one and brings that lost sheep home. There's something else significant about this word one, about Jesus highlighting even one lost sheep. It signifies the deeply, deeply personal way in which Jesus loves us. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, Anna. Jesus loves you, Jean. Jesus loves you, Violet. He knows you. He cares about you. Now, we resist this idea of Jesus loving the deeply 
in a deeply personal way. It's uncomfortable to us in the way that that was just uncomfortable for, for you right now. You wondered, how far is he going to go? <laughs> how many people is he going to name? We resist the idea of the deeply personal love of Jesus. Why? For a number of reasons. First, we feel that we don't deserve it. To which we say, well, of course you don't. No one does. But that's exactly the point of these three parables is to show us God's love does not depend on you deserving it. God's love is there for you if you want it. The cross is there as a complete gift. The empty grave is there as a gift. Eternal life is there as a gift. You cannot and you don't need to earn it. But we also resist this idea of the deeply personal love of Jesus because we also feel like, I'm, I'm not important enough. He's too busy for me. Some time ago, a, a parishioner told me a story of, of a Holy Week when he was sitting in the service and as people were moving around and things were happening, he just all of a sudden felt like Jesus was next to him, talking with him. And after about five minutes, this man said, well, this has been very nice, but don't you have other things to do and other people to care about and tend to. And he said it was as if Jesus gave him in that moment a vision of dozens of Jesuses all about the sanctuary, ministering to all his people, as if to say, no, I can do that. I have time for you. Jesus is not too busy for you. Maybe you've had other important people in your life who were too busy for you. But not Jesus. You're a top priority for him. He is not too busy for you. That's also why he loves it when you spend time with him. So when you come to church on a gray and gloomy Sunday morning, when you open your Bible throughout the week, when you make time to pray, Jesus loves that because he loves you. He also loves it when you love the people in your life, and when we as a church love one another, when we make people the priority, because then he says, ah, now you understand my heart. That's what I'm like. Now, another reason that we resist the idea of, of a deeply personal love of God for us is we've actually been taught that it's wrong. You've been taught, well, that's too individualistic. How many times have you heard somebody say something to the effect of, you know, we should change all the worship songs that say I and Jesus and make it we and Jesus? And I, I just say, well, sure, if we're going to do that to the Psalms also. The Psalms have plenty of I. They have plenty of we, but they have plenty of I. So many of the gospel stories are Jesus encountering in life-changing ways individual persons. Now, God cares about corporate realities, about societal systems and structures that are bigger than the individual, but he also cares about the individual person. There's no competition for him. And the reason he cares about the bigger structures is actually because of the impact they have on the individual person. So any idea that negates God's personal love, which has the capacity to speak to you at an individual and personal level, anything that negates this reality does not reflect the heart of God. 
Jesus is deeply and profoundly personal in the way he loves you, in the way he guides you, in the way he encourages you, even in the way he corrects and rebukes and convicts you. He's deeply personal. Just last week, I heard a story from a woman in our congregation who said, several months ago, I was in a, a place of deep struggle, in pain for someone I love. And my prayer coming to church that morning was, Jesus, I, I just need a double portion of your grace. I just need an extra gift of grace this morning. And she said that when she came to me in the communion line, uh, the altar guild, in cutting the bread, had failed to slice all the way through one piece. And so as I picked up one piece, there was a second attached to it and kind of wobbling, and inadvertently I gave her two pieces of bread. And she saw that as a sign from the Lord saying, I saw your prayer, I heard your cry. Isn't that just like the Lord to minister in such a clear and deeply personal way? Thanks be to God. And Thanks be to the altar guild for not slicing all the way through that, that piece of bread. Jesus, our good shepherd, he knows you. He sees you this morning and always. And he notices when the one goes missing. And maybe you're that one this morning. Or maybe that one is somebody that you love. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying for them. Jesus knows he sees. So Jesus loves us in a deeply personal way. He also, in verse 4, he goes after the one. He goes out, he seeks the lost until he finds it. So the love of our shepherd is a love that goes out and it seeks. God is always the one taking the first step. When a person begins searching for God, it's actually because the Holy Spirit was already at work in their life, drawing them to Jesus. In these three parables, we see this uh, lost and found language seven times. Lost and found, lost and found. Even in the prodigal son, even though he's not, he doesn't, uh, he's not found, he comes back, still the father says he was lost and he's found. So what does it mean to be found? Well, Jesus tells us. Jesus equates being found with a sinner repenting. So look at verse 7. So after talking about the sheep being found, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over what? One sinner who repents. That's the sheep being found. Or same thing in verse 10 with the coin. After the coin was found, Jesus says, just so, in this way, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So a sinner repenting is what it means to be found. Repentance is admitting that you were lost, turning your life around, and not only asking Jesus to forgive you, but also for Jesus to give you a new life, to walk in a new way. And that's what he does, and that's what he can do. People experience it as like being blind and having your eyes open. They'll say, all of a sudden, I could see. And actually, the prodigal son, we we say, well, he wasn't found. He came back. He was found. Do you know when he was found? When he came to his senses. When he was hungry and desolate, and at the end of his rope, he came to his senses, and he realized what he had done, and he decided to turn back. He did not do that on his own. 
That was the Holy Spirit going after him, finding him, and giving him that conviction and bringing him back. So in this experience of repentance, you realize things about your life that you just didn't see before. Wow, I was blind to X, Y, Z, my anger, my selfishness. I was enslaved to fill in the blank. Or, wow, I really hurt the people I loved. But here's how you also know it's truly of the Lord, that this sense of conviction is not accompanied by any shame. There's no shame. You feel rather the overwhelming kindness of Jesus. And even if you were truly unacceptable in your sin before, you don't feel that way anymore. And even if people would still view you as unacceptable, the kindness, the overwhelming love of Jesus for you removes all shame. And you're assured that the love of Jesus is enough. The joy of Jesus over you returning is all that you need. And notice that Jesus also says, he goes and he searches for the one that is lost until he finds it. Until he finds it. And there are some of you here this morning, you're here this morning saying, I'm so discouraged. Why do I keep falling back into the same old sins? And I want to give to you a special interpretation of the until he finds it. For you this morning, that means... Jesus will continue to come after you, to seek for you, and to find you again and again and again until you are free from that sin. Until he finds you, until you are free. You will be set free. Jesus is coming for you. He will not give up until you are free from that sin. Don't you give up either. Keep fighting. And so when that last sheep is found, the shepherd, Jesus, puts the sheep upon his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Jesus loves every one of his sheep, even those who are unacceptable to love in the sight of others. But now the Pharisees, they would have none of it. They could not enter into the joy of a sinner coming back. Notice the contrast between the reaction of heaven, joy and rejoicing and throwing a party, and the reaction of the Pharisees for their blindness. They could not see the good thing. The lives transformed, people changing. They couldn't see it for good. All they could see was the unforgivable sins. They had many unforgivable sins. That's all they could see. They could not enter into the rejoicing or Jesus' love for the lost. And you know what? They were lost too. The Pharisees were just as lost as the tax collectors and the sinners, but in a different way. And if you want to know the secret to understanding this parable of the one and the 99, here's the secret that makes this whole parable make sense. There is no 99. There are no 99 who do not need repentance. All of us are the one sheep straying. There's no category of those who do not need 
the work of Jesus to redeem them. Isaiah says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us turning to our own way, and to bring us back, God has laid upon Jesus the Messiah, the cross, so that by his sacrifice, by his blood, and by his life, he bears the pain and the price of our rebellion so that you and I don't have to. But Isaiah says, all of us are in need of the ministry of the blood of Jesus. There are no 99 who do not need repentance. And if you are one of the 99 who believe that you don't need repentance, that's just another way of being lost. That's just another way, a different way of being the one lost sheep. And I want to tell you something beautiful. Jesus loved the Pharisee too. He tells these parables for them. He doesn't tell these parables for the tax collectors and the sinners. Why? Well, because they were already experiencing the love of Jesus for those who were unacceptable and outcast. So they didn't need parables to convince them of that truth. They were living it. Who needed that? The Pharisees needed that. And Jesus gave it to them. He told this for them. And in telling these parables, we see Jesus, the good shepherd, going after the one lost sheep, even among the Pharisees. Yes, it was pointed. Yes, it was a word of rebuke. Yes, he was challenging their norms and their values and their beliefs in the hopes that they would repent. Because if even a Pharisee repents, Jesus rejoices and all of heaven with him. Case in point, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said, I was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. I was the worst of sinners, we heard in the epistle reading. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, he says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And he goes on to say, but I received mercy for this reason that in me the worst of sinners there would be an example to all those who would believe in Jesus for eternal life. So this morning, in what way are you lost and straying? Do you need to come back to Jesus as your good shepherd? Perhaps you are like the tax collectors and the sinners this morning. The sins are obvious. They're what people would typically look at and say, yeah, that's, that's bad behavior. But you're in church, and recently you've, you've begun taking steps away from God. One step leads to another, and you know that there are sins in your life that are sins, but you're ignoring them. You're not repenting of them. You're not asking for Jesus' help. And so this morning, he's gently reminding you, you are straying like a lost sheep. Come back to me. Repent. Acknowledge those sins that you've been ignoring, and come back to me. It could be that you're like a tax collector and a sinner and that you've been gone from church for a long time, and now you're back. And now you realize it's because the Holy Spirit was working in you to draw you here. And now you're here, and you don't know quite why it is, but you're ready. You're saying, Jesus, I'm ready to come to you. Praise God. So if you're a tax collector or a sinner this morning, your prayer is, Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry for ignoring you, and going my own way, in whatever way you have, name the specific ways you have.
please help me to follow you with my whole life. Or it could be that you're here this morning and you're straying, not as a tax collector and a sinner, but you're straying like the Pharisees were lost and straying. You know too well the judgmental heart, the legalistic spirit, which narrowly defines the right thing to do and has little patience for those who do not do as you think they ought. You're overly critical. Now, there's a place for critical thinking, but this is an overly inflated sense of critique that loves and even gets a sense of power and value from being able to pick apart everything else. You're just critical. You are contemptuous. You look down on others. Who in your life do you find unacceptable? They are just unacceptable. They frustrate you. They anger you. And though you maybe wouldn't say it out loud, in your eyes, they are not worth love. Who in your life is hard to love? Who in your life have you written off and closed your heart to? It may be a specific person that immediately the Lord brings to mind. Or it may be a group of people that you can't stand. You, you disagree with them. You, like the Pharisees, have set up your own categories of acceptable and unacceptable. Who gets your goat? And maybe it is the modern-day Pharisees. Oh, those hypocrites, you can't stand them. Whether it's the Christian hypocrites of that flavor or the secular progressive Pharisees. There are Pharisees of all kinds, but you just can't stand those hypocritical Pharisees, and that attitude makes you one of them. This is something that the Lord brought home to me in a powerful way some time ago. I was at a place of just being fed up with that spirit of contempt, criticism. I just saw it everywhere, in the culture, even here in our church, in my peers. I just saw us given over to this critical, judgmental, pharisaical spirit, and I was fed up with it. I couldn't stand it. And Jesus said, okay, Brett, so you have contempt for the contemptuous. And I said, yeah, is there a problem with that? And he said, Brett, this is not something you can fight fire with fire. You can't drive out contempt with more contempt. And that is a lesson that throughout my adult life, the Lord has shown me the ways in which I can go astray into judgmental thinking, legalistic thinking, putting a principle over a person, not loving with the deep and personal love of Jesus, the person right in front of me. I have so many excuses and so many reasons why I can justify that. And so do you, probably. And in this last year, I was wrestling with this and saying, Lord, I know this isn't right. And there are people in my life, it is really hard for me to love right now. I, I can't bring myself to love them, and I know I'm supposed to. And this was something I was pleading with the Lord all throughout this year. And I just want to bear testimony that about a month and a half ago, I was receiving ministry from a ministry down in Jacksonville, Florida, and training and, and also just receiving prayer from them. And with the laying on of hands and with my confession of the pharisaical spirit and judgmentalism, and yet also my desire to love with the love of Jesus, it was broken, and I was set free. And I want to say I'm sorry for any way that I've ever been legalistic or pharisaical in my preaching or my pastoral life. I'm sorry. I repent of that before you. And I invite you to join with me 
in renouncing the spirit of Pharisaism, judgmentalism, legalism. I think there is something that the Lord wants to do in us, yes, this morning, but in this coming season, of a releasing of all the pharisaical spirit that is in us, the judgmental and legalistic self-righteous spirit, and to be set free and to receive from him a gracious heart. Do you want that? Do you want to be set free from your sin? So, Lord Jesus, we come to you even now, whether as tax collectors and sinners or whether as Pharisees, we say, Lord, have mercy. You know the sins. You know the depth and the root of them. Forgive us, Lord. And I do pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us from all sin, teach us to walk in the way of holiness. And in particular, this morning and in the season to come, I pray that in the name of Jesus and by the blood of the cross, you would lift from this people, from Church of the Resurrection, the Pharisaical spirit. We renounce the Pharisaical spirit in the name of Jesus. Set us free to walk with a gracious heart now and evermore. Make us like you, Jesus, to love with your love. This is your work. This is your power, and it's a miracle every time, but we are asking for it now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.